what you see right now is a lot of organizations marketing cannabis brands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the problem. Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems. Okay. You know, there's a lot of conversation around, well, cannabis will be commoditized. Cannabis is a commodity. Mm -hmm. It's a plant, specifically the flower from a plant and what you can, you know, make with that. Cotton's a commodity also. And you don't see Levi's marketing cotton. True, yeah. Right? And so at some point, brand has to be inserted at a context that's elevated above the raw ingredient right. in order to stop playing and stop competing as a commodity. Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host, Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Today on the show, we had Owen Reeder as our guest, and he was previously the chief engagement officer at Cult, an engagement agency. And now he's actually stepped out on his own to launch Indelible, which is specifically in the cannabis space. So that ended up naturally being a lot of what we talked about today. He's also the author of a book called The Pot Apocalypse revelations for the cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. I learned so much in this episode, a lot about how to market cannabis, which is kind of a new space and a brand new industry and vertical that people are still kind of wrapping their heads around how to do brand well. Yeah, it's like the wild, wild west out here. Totally. And one thing that, you know, I'm really still thinking about and still like processing is the concept of brand and he and Owen did such a good job of defining what brand is and mm -hmm. it's going back to experience like experience that you have with the brand like if it's a direct-to-consumer product like what is the experience that you have when you open their package what does it smell like what does it look like and immediately I started thinking of like brands that do that well and for me one of those brands would be Glossier definitely which I order a lot of and I love the brand and I stand for the brand and I just love everything they do and produce and things that they post on social and their packaging is amazing and they give us these great pink bubbly like bubble wrap makeup bags that I have a ton of and my daughter loves to play with and not gonna lie I've even used some of their products totally yeah they're yeah. a great brand they've bomb. got some com. awesome bomb.com <laughs> but yeah they're a brand that definitely does experience well um, yeah. And then Owen also talks about brands that, in his opinion, are doing brand well and how important that is in the cannabis industry, especially since it's a brand new space and people in the space need to shift from focusing on the commodity and establishing a brand presence beyond the actual thing that they're doing. Yeah. I think just overall, there's just a lot of gold here. Out of all the episodes we've done so far, is probably going to be the one that makes you want to just do more research. Totally. Partly because it's a new space. It's one that's changing quickly, but also because of all the insight and the actual strategic wisdom that was dropped. I feel like there's a few mic drops in this episode, mm -hmm. but don't just leave it here, you know, like listen to mm -hmm. the episode and take it farther, apply it to what you do as a marketer or in your business as an entrepreneur or whatever, wherever you can gain the value. Yeah. It's got me rethinking about brands and the brands that we work with and how we're helping them create great experiences with their customers and consumers and followers. One thing also that I found really ironic is Owen kind of brings us back to the early days and how he started his career in university and how in every kind of like university project, he would like refrain or like resist adding like media buys in his plans and his professors were all like, yeah, you, you did a great job. But what we're really looking for is a media plan or media spending plan. And now he's entering a space you know, a niche that's cannabis where you can't really spend any dollars on advertising and marketing. So it's cool to see that like full circle story. Yeah. And to just challenge the way we think, you know, as marketers, mm -hmm. I think he referenced advertising as lazy marketing, which 
hurt a little bit for me. Yeah, that was because <laughs> we use advertising a lot, but and it doesn't mean there's not a place for advertising totally. when when you're a brand. But just to challenge us, I guess, to get out of our comfort zone and think about other ways that we can engage with audiences or bring products to market, or even beyond just the product, create an experience like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, we can get into it. It's going to be a good one. So let's roll it. Let's do it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. We've been looking forward to this one a lot. And one question that we just love to dive in with right off the start is it's kind of an opportunity for you to introduce yourself beyond what your title is. Maybe give us a rundown of your career trajectory and like how you got to where you are now. And we're going to dig into it a little bit more. (laughs) All right. How far back should I go? Take us to the vault. In 19... 92, I bought my first set of Lego. Nice. No, I think it was probably (laughs) not quite then. I went to school, post-secondary school, didn't really know what I was studying, dropped out a bunch of times, finally figured out that I kind of just was curious about business in general. And the more I thought about it, the more it felt like marketing was business and that if you wanted to be somebody who's in a position of influence to direct where a business was going to direct the decisions that would lead to success or failure, you had a better chance to influence more things through that particular discipline. I was also not that interested in accounting and management for whatever reason seemed fluffy. I regret that now because I should have paid more attention because I I think that each of these disciplines sort of in the business school career path or or post-secondary path are valuable in and of themselves. But marketing was very appealing to me in that regard. And by the time I kind of got my act together and got through school, I was sort of more mature. I had a mortgage. I had a couple of vehicle payments. I had a wife. I had a kid on the way. And so I was just in a, probably a bit of a different life space than most of my peers at school. And I think that probably influenced things a little bit. But ultimately, I grew pretty disenfranchised with the curriculum. I think by the time I was done, I would do well. And I, you know, we'd be given a a project, let's say, and I would propose what my solution was to the business case problem or whatever. And oftentimes I would propose something that was experiential or customer service based or something that was event based or some form of product development, some form of interesting partnership. And I would usually argue my case well enough that I'd get a you know passing grade or whatever. But I would always get the, you know, sit down from the teacher and be like, you argued it really well, so we're giving you the grade. But we really wanted to see a media plan and maybe a promotion or two. And I was just like, do you have a TV still? Because <laughs> like, back then, I, like I didn't have a TV. I was probably because I was too poor, but I was like, I don't look at ads. You know, I've got ad blockers on my browsers. I almost become turned off of brands because they're shooting me so many ads. And like, if you look at anybody who's succeeding now, they're not playing by the playbook that you're teaching. So I was sort of frustrated and I knew I was an entrepreneur and I knew I wanted to work for myself, but I sort of made the arrogant decision to go and just start an agency right after graduating. And I knew nothing about it. And a lot of people were like, you don't know anything about it. Why would you make that decision? And my answer was, I would rather learn from my own mistakes than unlearn the mistakes of an industry that I don't even believe in. So just to break in there, straight out of university, you started an agency. Earlier, you mentioned that you kind of regretted not studying management as like a stream or directive. Is this why? Like, was that quickly what you realized you didn't have the chops in as much as you were a marketer? No, I think I think one of the hardest lessons that I've learned or been learning probably for the last like six years is to work within a team really, really well, to lead a team really, really well. And I think that that's a skill that for all I know, I didn't go into the program. For for all I know, they teach it as poorly as they teach marketing. (laughs) But shout out to my profs. Love you guys. They're all (laughs) great, great people. This sounds really bad, but I just think it's a lesson that has been hard learned that that's a skill in and of itself. Um, So it wasn't so much about that as it was about feeling deficient in that regard at times. Right. So then when you started your agency, did you build a team pretty quickly or was it was it mostly you as a broker? What did that look like? Yeah. So no, I didn't hire right away. I knew from the get-go that I wanted to try to partially through 
an aversion to risk. And partially through trying to be opportunistic, I didn't want to hire a team of people that would do the work for me. I was sort of multi-skilled. I was a bit of a writer, a bit of a strategist, a bit of a creative director. I could put a few different hats on. But I knew that my revenue wasn't predictable. Like I had ups and downs. I had months where I was making good money, months when I wasn't. And so I didn't want to carry that stress of like how many staff I have to pay. But the other part of it was I would way rather solve for the problem of how do I get that interesting thing done than I'd like to solve for the problem of how do I keep that interesting person busy enough to justify their salary. So it was those two things that sort of led me. When I launched the agency, I didn't have any staff. It was just me. I just took time to assemble this sort of tight network of people that I really trusted who knew way more than me. I would go to meetings with these people, with our clients, with my clients, and listen to them, just jotting notes down in my in my notebook. And I'd go back when the meeting was done, I'd go back to my office and like Google all the things that my team, like the people who were working for me were saying, because I was like, what's SEO? (laughs) I don't know. Like I literally was that ignorant. I didn't know any, I I knew a lot of like academic Mm -hmm. things. I knew very little practical, in practice, tactical things. So I went through that. It went actually really well. It was a painful time, but it was good learning, like just constantly, constantly learning. I remember thinking there was every time I made a mistake that was very easy because it's just, it was me, my, mm-hmm. my money, my clients. Right. So every time I made a mistake, I knew what that cost. Right. And it was like, Oh, I lost that project. Right. That client fired me. Oh, that was, and so I kept track of all these mistakes I made and I kind of kept a tally. I think I got up to like, no, I no longer keep a tally. It probably got too depressing, <laughs> but it was, I probably got up to like a half a million dollars worth of mistakes Crazy. over the course of several years. Right. Of like, oh, you lost a $100,000 client. Like, that's a big one. Or, you know, that's a missed opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Or you had to redo that. And I was like, well, that's like a super expensive, but really effective MBA in running an agency. Because it was just these mistakes. Right. Just constantly making mistakes. But I stayed true to what I thought Mm -hmm. upon graduating, which was that, like, I'm going to learn my own way of doing things. And I'm going to apply my own paradigms and my own beliefs to my clients' businesses. And we saw great success with our clients. And I bumped into the agency cult and without really knowing that there were all that many other agencies that thought terribly differently, I think I took for granted how closely we thought Hmm. about what was important. Cult's an engagement firm. And so they tend to use non-traditional approaches to building consumer engagement or brand attachment which sound like soft metrics, but they're really not. They're meaningful metrics for both loyalty and advocacy and word of mouth. And they're probably a better predictor of business health in a B2C business. But even in a B2B business, Mm -hmm. it's probably a better indicator of business health than net promoter score or anything else that you could potentially measure. So we were really closely aligned. And I sort of thought like, oh, maybe everybody thinks like this, but it's not the case. There's a lot of people that don't think that way. We ended up getting into a joint venture. We launched sort of under a separate brand, another agency, and it continued to grow. At that point, I did hire. I did bring some people on, one of whom still works with me today. And I sort of did that for another uh, three years or so. I was working 60, 70 hour weeks, you know, was working pretty hard, a lot of things on my shoulders, kind of getting a little, maybe a little bit tired of the type of clients I was working with. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but I think I, I felt like I wanted to have a challenge to like go toe to toe with some people in the bigger arena. And uh, we decided to usher that agency into cult. I took on a role there as the uh, VP of client services. So overseeing a lot of the client stuff, but really coming back to sort of one of my bit of a bigger passion is in strategy. Uh, And so I transitioned to a role called the chief engagement officer, uh, which is where I have been up until about two, three weeks ago depending on when this podcast comes out. (laughs) Amazing. Going back to those early days when you started your agency, fresh out the gate, fresh out of university, how did you get your first clients? When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. 
Yeah, there's probably a couple of things. I would attribute it to three things. I convinced friends, people that I knew to give me money to do what I wanted to do to help their business. That was a very little bit. I was only able to convince very few of them. But then as I began to work for those people, I was introduced and met a bunch of different businesses through those relationships. Those people I was able to convince a little bit more. So I was able to sell a little bit there. And then the third thing, which is probably the most significant decision I've made, probably the most profitable decision I've made is that I asked a guy to mentor me who was running an agency. And uh, we've since become close friends. That's Ryan Gill. Cool. And Ryan at the time was running Suitcase. I asked him if he would mentor me as I wanted to sort of figure this out on my own, not get a job. So I wasn't applying for a job because I think he was getting a lot of those back in the day. And and uh, I was like, I don't want a job. I'd like to just pick your brain and get advice from you and that kind of thing. And he sent me in, you know, he sent me down a path. And when he told me to go do something, I went and did it and made sure that I got it done and came back to him and said, Hey, I did that. Like, I remember, you know, there was days where he's like, okay, the next two days, I just want you in your office making cold calls. Nice. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. He's like, you're not going to win a single client, but you're going to get really used to hearing no. So I was like, okay, man, wow. I'll, I'll go do it. I went there and I went into the office and I did it for two days and I just like got totally okay with hearing no. Didn't land a single deal out of it yeah. <laughs> and um, bothered a lot of people. But it, you know, it brought back the list. Like, here's all the things I phoned. Here's all the people I phoned and all that stuff. And now, and he's like, cool. Now you don't care. That'll make you better. And it was good. It was like lessons like that where he, right. and then he, and then he facilitated giving me, you know, leads now and then when, mm -hmm. you know, they, when an opportunity came up. So he'd kind of come and see how hungry I was. If I hadn't eaten in a couple of days, he'd throw a potential account my way. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like that was pretty important, but can you articulate how important or crucial to your success having that mentoring relationship was, especially early? Oh, I mean, I'm a confident guy and I'll give myself credit where I, <laughs> like I give myself credit fairly often, but I wouldn't have gotten anywhere without it. I think I was that lost. I think the only smart thing that I did was to know how ignorant I was about it. And that I just listened and I just, I actioned on things. I tried to action right away when I was getting that kind of counsel. I think one of the things that where people get sort of messed up with mentors sometimes is they're like, I want a mentor. And then they don't mm -hmm. want to listen. Right. right. And so sure. I was like, look, I, in my mind, I was like, I'm taking this guy's time. The least I could do is listen and, and action on it. And so I just tried to put a lot of stuff into action. And so I, I, would, I, I sort of attribute what success I've had and what experience I've had, at least maybe that's a better word for it. I owe that experience to a lot of the shots that he gave me for sure. How do you ask someone to be a mentor? Like, I feel like there's a lot of people out there that want or like the idea, but the idea of approaching someone that they respect or is like hundreds of yards ahead of them or years ahead of them. Yeah. What does that look like? I probably did it like how I would do it now would be maybe a bit different. That might be a better I, I, do, I still do it now. Right. So my better answer would be like build a relationship first, probably. You don't have to do that, but I think it's helpful. And then bring to the table what it is that you need mentorship in, hmm. as well as like, even maybe proposing some of how you might receive that mentorship. So be specific. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. this is what I see you have that I want to grow right. in. And, you know, I'd like you to mentor me and, and this is how maybe we could do it. But I'm open to whatever your suggestions are. Right. At some point you got to release it to the mentor. They got to drive it. Mm -hmm. But it, but you should come. It, when I did it with Ryan, we were both at a CMA event and I was like, oh, it's Ryan. And I knew him a little bit. And so I, I was with my wife and we just had free tickets to this event. We had no money. So we were like, let's go to this free event. Right. Shout out CMA. Can, <laughs> Christmas at Cannes, I think it was. And I went and just walked up to him. He was like a sponsor at the event. And I just walked up to him and I was like, hey, can I swing by your office this week and pick your brain? I'm starting an agency. I could use some advice. So it wasn't even like fully officially. Like I kind of like beat around the bush because I didn't want to get a no. Right. <laughs> I still hated no's back then. Now I don't. Thanks cool. to Ryan. Thanks to Ryan. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. I think that's Good insight. Yeah. I, I feel like there's lots of listeners that likely are interested in a mentoring relationship, but don't know the value of it or don't even know where to start. So mm -hmm. that's, that's cool. So you mentioned that you got into a joint venture with Cult and uh, was Ryan part of Cult at the time? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Okay. Still um, is. Still is. Yeah. And then that brings us to now. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned you were the chief engagement officer until a few weeks ago. What are you doing now? A few weeks ago, myself and Kate 
we're in chats with a bunch of different people as well, but we launched a, a new agency and it's an agency called Indelible and we focus entirely on the cannabis industry, leveraging engagement principles and non-traditional marketing and brand building in order to create a sustainable competitive advantage for the firms that we and the, the brands that we work with. Indelible means cannot be removed or erased. And in third world countries, when you vote, and there's not a lot of sophisticated measures to prevent voter fraud, what they do, and this still happens in many countries around the world, when you come to cast your vote, you dip your thumb, you press your thumb in an, in an ink pad, and that ink pad's an indelible ink pad. And that'll never come off until your skin comes off. Like that's like permanent. It's beyond Sharpie. Wow. It's like permanent marker, mm-hmm. permanent ink. Crazy. It's indelible ink. It doesn't, cannot be removed. Really what we do for our clients, for the clients that we work with, we help them to understand what they need to do today to be around 50 or 100 years from now. The cannabis space is brand new. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of businesses that go out of business in the next few years and beyond that. But there will be three, four, five, maybe 10 brands that will be legacy brands, Mm -hmm. iconic brands. There will be the Coca-Colas, the Carhartts and the Levi's of cannabis that will be around 50 to 100 years from now. That's what we are working to build for our clients. And so it's a very different approach than most marketing agencies anywhere take and certainly a different approach than most marketing agencies or marketing consultancies take in the cannabis space where it's a gold rush right now. We all want to make money right now. Everybody's trying to get their products out, start selling. And oftentimes what we're seeing from our perspective based on the research we've done is that a lot of that is coming at the sacrifice of the longevity and the sustainability of the activity of the brand. If you're a podcast host or someone wanting to be interviewed on podcasts as a guest, visit podmatch.com. Podmatch automatically connects ideal podcast guests and hosts together for interviews. We always say it works just like a dating app, but instead of connecting you for dates, it connects you for podcast interviews. Podmatch has connected over 85,000 guests and hosts together for interviews that listeners love, all while saving you countless hours of administrative work through built-in automations. If you're ready to level up your podcast interviews on either side of the mic, start today by visiting podmatch.com. Tell us about what's different from your approach. Like you mentioned that it's different from what other marketers are doing or what other consultants are doing. And I think especially in the cannabis space, you have to be different because you can't rely on traditional strategies like advertising. So talk to us about what's different about your approach when you're working with some of these brands. Yeah. What you see right now is a lot of organizations marketing cannabis brands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the problem. Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems. You know, there's a lot of conversation around, well, cannabis will be commoditized Cannabis is a commodity. Mm-hmm. It's a plant, specifically the flower from a plant and what you can you know make with that. Cotton's a commodity also. And you don't see Levi's marketing cotton. True, yeah. Right? And so at some point, brand has to be inserted at a context that's elevated above the raw ingredient right. in order to stop playing and stop competing as a commodity. And so what we see right now is like, cannabis is hot. Mm -hmm. It's a frothy space and consumers are leaning into it more and more. The media is picking up on it. There's a lot of earned media coverage that you can get exposure that you can get as a brand, but everybody's launching it from the same, and I would argue, flawed concept. And that goes for CBD as well. CBD is a commodity. It's simply a molecule. And so one of the things that makes us different is that one of the first things we do when we work with a new client is we say, what are you outside of the context of cannabis? Let's explore what you are from an experience that you're delivering. Let's explore what you are from the difference that you're making for somebody. Let's explore what you are from the purpose that you have and make sure that that's different enough and not just different, but make sure that it's valuable enough that somebody could care about it. 
And then the other thing I think that's important that I think is a little bit different about how we approach it is cannabis is contentious, right? So if you look at the studies right now, four and five people, it's probably more like three and four people maybe now don't use cannabis. And they don't not use it because they haven't heard of it mm-hmm. <laughs> because if it's not an awareness problem, right? right. They all, everyone's Definitely. aware of it. Yeah. They're opposed to it, whether they're like vociferously opposed and like protesting against it or whether they're just like, that's not for me. Cannabis is bad. I've been taught that drugs are bad. So it's contentious and any sort of category that has that kind of contention tends to exist on a, an adoption curve similar to like technology. So mm-hmm. innovators, early adopters, early majority, late yeah. majority laggers, that kind of thing. And right now, not only are brands being brought to market in the context of cannabis, hey, we're such and such cannabis or Ignite Cannabis or we're whatever, they're also really densely focused and I would argue accidentally focused on the earliest wave of adoption in this space. So, you know, you could argue that we're through innovators and we're into early adopters. Maybe you could argue in CBD, we're getting into some of the early majority on an adoption curve specific to this industry. But every brand is focused there. Every brand is positioned there. And, And I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I think they're just lazy. Like they're accidentally positioned towards this really early market. So the other thing that we do is we say, let's make sure that that's actually where we want to be. Right. Because the brands that tend to, in any contentious category, in any kind of tech or contention, the brands that tend to move further down the adoption curve with an innovative product and a, you know, a relevant value proposition for consumers, when they leapfrog their competitors and move further down the adoption curve, they tend to win in the long term. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One of which is because you just have to, if you're going to move down the adoption curve, you have to behave differently. Hmm. You're forced to bring something different to market because those people are not ready to buy what's currently on market. So you have to do something innovative, either in what the product is or how you deliver it, how you fulfill it what comes along with it, what's the context that it's in, any number of things that you've got to be different. And then the other thing is that if you get there first, it's a first mover's advantage to a new market set. And those people that you connect with, those people that you actually make that real connection with are far more inclined to talk to their friends about it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you initiate, you've got a better chance of instigating valuable word of mouth using that kind of an approach than you do if you just sort of play with the masses where the money's being made right now. And I get the temptation, don't get me wrong. Like there's Mm -hmm. people making lots of money selling cannabis in the rec space or in the medical space to the people who are buying today. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if you're going to live there, be intentional about it, understand how you're going to position so that people care about you five, 10, 15, a hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. Man, you should write a book about this. It's funny you should mention that. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> I did write a book about it. Yeah. I nerd out on cannabis. You got to be careful when you ask me questions about it because <laughs> awesome. we'll, we'll spend the rest of the hour talking about it. Or I will spend, you'll listen and I'll just talk. But <laughs> I know I wrote a book. It's called The Pot Apocalypse, Revelations for the Cannabis Industry. And the premise of this book is actually that within the next three to five years in the industry, we're going to reach an evolutionary plateau. We're going to hit the next phase of evolution of the industry. And that is going to come with massive disruption. We're going to see a huge price correction. We're going to see regulations lift, competition increase. We're going to see some of the gray market, more of the gray market migrate into the white market. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see more claims being substantiated from a medical standpoint around the efficacy of CBD and and medicinal cannabis. We're going to see a lot of things that happen all in the next sort of three to five years. So it's all kind of converging on this, like in the grand scheme of things, what is a fairly narrow horizon. And most organizations right now are not suited to deal with that disruption. The margin compression that's going to come with it, the increased competition that's going to come with it, all of these things that sort of come along with this next phase of evolution require preparation in some way in order to navigate it in a a healthy fashion from like a healthy business through that period. And really what that is, is you kind of have two options. You can be the big guy, so you can compete at scale where you can actually drive the price pressure, the downward price pressure in order to sort of choke out some of your competitors that maybe don't produce at scale or whatever. Or you can leverage your scale to get into more and more, you know, to sort of lock up a lot of the larger retail 
outlets that are selling cannabis products or CBD products. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of own the channel to the market, own the channel to the consumer. And that's all sort of the scale playbook. So the big guys are going to be good at that. But there's a huge field in the middle that's mid-sized. And there's a bunch underneath of that that are very small that won't be able to play those games. Mm-hmm. I anticipate some of them will consolidate. There's probably going to be some mergers and some people that try to pile their assets together so they can try to compete at scale effectively. You know, there's only so much room for that. And I think the rest of them are going to struggle, except for the ones that get off the beaten path a little bit. And that's where what we're really talking about is if you had two choices ahead of you, one was to get to scale and you could do it. Cool. Go do it. But if you can't get to scale, you need to drive to brand attachment. And what brand attached, it sounds super soft. Anytime you talk about brand, I kind of, I'm like, mm. people hear brand and they're like, it's like code word for bullshit. Right. Because it's just, for so, it gets thrown around. There's like 18 different definitions for what it means. What, what I mean by brand attachment is the degree of emotional connection that a consumer has with a brand. And that still sounds weird, but the reality is that humans do have relationships with brands. We do experience emotions and feelings and carry beliefs around brands as if they are people. And so if you can work to strengthen that relationship, what we see time and time again, and this is nothing new, but we know that people with stronger emotional bonds, stronger connection towards brands are willing to pay more for it, are willing to stick by it, are willing to ignore competitive offers and, and appeals based on price from other sort of substitutes in the space. They're willing to forgive them when they make a mistake They're willing to talk about it and share it with their friends and family and the people that they know, and they're willing to advocate for it. So we know that that pathway, it's a difficult pathway to achieve, but we know that if you can work with diligence towards achieving that sort of brand attachment, you've got a fighting chance because even when price pressure comes and things become cheaper and whatnot, and even when you know retail distribution gets a little bit harder, you've got a huge consumer base, and maybe it's not even a huge consumer base, but you've got a passionate consumer base that's saying, no, 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 that's the brand I buy. Totally. Wow. Yeah. You've laid out a lot of different trails. Sorry, I went yeah. too, I go too long. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. It's that's good. good. Like you've laid out a lot of trails I think we could follow. But totally. before we get too far, I think I want to hang on brand a little bit. Do you it. said a lot of words like price pressure and scale and attachment and purpose and experience, you know, and I think most of those, if not all of them point back to brand. And you already alluded to the fact that there's lots of different definitions and even some people would perceive it to just be kind of a BS kind of word. But can you just give us your definition of brand, what you perceive it to be and how that influences these approaches that you're talking about? Yeah. So, it's such a loaded... It's not a loaded question. It's just it's a loaded subject. It's a loaded mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But so I've perused the various definitions of brand and full transparency. When I launched my agency, you know, in ignorance, like right after graduating, I defined brand as logos. <laughs> so right. I, I, most people is, do. Yeah. yeah. Still. Still most people do. So this has been yeah. an evolution for me, but I define brand now as the experience of interacting with the manifestation of of a corporate entity or product. And experience is still very broad. So I realize I haven't really narrowed that definition down that much. But I think when you start to define it by experience rather than a thing, you start to get into territory that's relevant towards the emotional and behavioral psychology things that are more relevant when you're talking about brand. Mm -hmm. Like brand is only relevant... If you're talking about it in a way that you can make a business healthier. Right. And logo is not going to make a business healthier. Mm-hmm. But the way that you facilitate a connection between a consumer and, and the products or things or services that you're selling, the more you're able to do that, the better your business will be, the greater degree of impact on the business. So experience to me, it could be anything from how I find out about you, how mm. you communicate to me, how I consume or use your product or your service. And, you know, it could be like what down you to on the minutia. Yeah, what you put on social media. Mm-hmm. It could be down to like, what's the feeling of opening the box? Like, right. what's the smell of the retail store? Like, mm-hmm. what does it smell like when I come? How am I greeted? Mm-hmm. What are you wearing? The, the entire experience. So, it's super broad. Right. But it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's exactly where you interact with the people that are paying to purchase your product. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's well articulated. Totally. And you've worked with some amazing brands. Like what are some of your favorites that you've worked with? Or even someone that's just doing that side of brand really well, like yeah. the experience. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody talks a lot about Apple, uh, you know, with what they did with the retail experience or what it's like. Like people are like, I think people did MRIs on somebody opening Apple products, like opening oh, the new really? boxes. And it was like what they were mapping out in their brain waves and brain function was identical to somebody having a religious experience. Really? Wow. Yeah. So there's Crazy. things like that are kind of cool, but Apple's a little bit tired. It's a bit of a tired pony. So let's talk about something else. I think one of my favorite brands that I'm a customer from is Traeger. Traeger nice. Smokers and Grills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see all this meat on your Insta stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not good for my health, but I really do enjoy it. So these guys, they're out of Salt Lake. They were out of Oregon. They're out of Salt Lake now. And they create these pellet smokers, like a barbecue mm -hmm. basically, but mm -hmm. it smokes your meat and it connects to your phone. It's sweet. So when you buy that product, you get a big box like you would expect it from any big barbecue that you buy. But then you open that box up and the experience begins. So your instructions for putting your Traeger together for constructing it says you need two people. And I don't think you do. I did it by myself. You don't need two people, but they know that this is a together thing. And every step of the instruction is measured in how many beers you will be able to drink while you do this thing. So it's like, that's, that's a hilarious. one beer step. That's a two beer step. That's a three beer step. Inside of the box, there's like a cardboard thing that's used to cradle, I think like a part, one of the parts for shipping. Right. It's got two cup holders for beers cut right. out of it. So, right. so you've got a place to put your beer. The big box that it comes in, you turn it inside out and it's printed like a log cabin, like a, like a old log cabin kind of thing. So like while I'm building my barbecue, I like tape this thing back together and I, my daughter's in the backyard decorating this cardboard playhouse and it's like a it becomes a playhouse wow once you put the roof up and stuff like that and she's like small enough still to get in there and like play around it's got windows and she's decorating the outside of it wow. and then like from the moment and this is the kind of the attention to detail people mm -hmm. when you think about brand that way this is the kind of attention to detail you need to play so it's like right from when you open the box you're in this experience and then when you start to use the product, you've got this, it's, you know, it's connected to your phone because they know people are mobile. They know that people are finding some way to, it's the internet of things, that whole vibe where it's like, let's connect our device so that people can be interacting with it more frequently. Mm -hmm. They start to create through their social media, like you pointed out, mm -hmm. rituals on the weekend. So like every Sunday, they, they're sharing out what the community's cooking and stuff like that breaking every rule probably in terms of frequency of publication for social right, media. Like right. there's like a hundred stories on a Sunday <laughs> nice. and it's annoying a little bit, but yeah. it's also sweet because you're like, oh man, those ribs look good. I'm going to do that next weekend. And, and or you whatever. can make it on those stories. You and know, then yeah, like yeah. They, shout, they, they shout people out. I haven't yeah. shouted out yet, but I got, they did like, Come on, Traeger. Yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I did like one or two of my posts this summer, but they're not a brand I've worked with, to be clear. They're not mm -hmm. a client. But when I think about the, that idea of experience, that's one that I, that's just, I think they're nailing it. It's awesome. Nice. Is there one that you have worked with that you'd like to talk about as far as doing brand or experience well? Yeah, we've worked with a lot of different brands over the years. The Home Depot US was a client for a while. And it's not probably the easiest organization to work with as an agency because it's just a big, big, big machine. It's the biggest retailer in the world. Like they're, I think, or one of the biggest retailers in the world. They're just massive. So it's a big machine, very corporate. But I do think, you know, that, you know, some of the things that we put in place with them, not around the regular format of their services, like we didn't work on e-com, we didn't work on retail, we didn't work on that, but we did work on these things like workshops. Mm -hmm. And so I liked that kind of aspect where they're saying, what if we use this giant retail square space that we have and we bring like fathers and daughters together to build some stuff and we teach them how to do it. And so there's like these cool moments that we were able to help create and craft. And then, you know, we helped to create and craft like a, an experience for actually hiring a contractor through Home Depot to put things up in your house. Like a lot of people aren't really into DIY anymore. It's mm -hmm. D-I-F-F. M, do it for me. Oh, that's instead me for of sure. <laughs> yeah. And so we helped stand up a program for them to, you know, integrate their pros into the buying experience and cool. stuff like that. And it, it was enjoyable to think about, you know, when you're working with a brand that much 
clout to think about how you can really get into the minutia. Mm-hmm. I like getting into that minutia. There's another one we work with more recently here called Spec Travel. Spec Products is a phone case case company. Um, they've got a travel line that they've more recently launched, like in the last four five months. You know, as we were designing out with them, what do we want to deliver to people? What's the experience of this brand that we're going to deliver in market? You know, we're really trying to find, like encourage people, inspire people to who are on business travel to find a moment for some fun. Hmm. We call it leisure. Nice. leisure travel so you're you know a guy like me is on, i'm on the road quite a bit yeah once every couple of weeks at least hitting a couple of different cities and working with clients and that kind of thing and i'm like i go to the hotel i go to the client i go to the hotel i go to the airport like i'm like i don't make time for fun i'm tired i want to like chill out watch netflix but every now and then when i do it i have so much fun like right. let's go out and see the town let's go grab a show let's go to the comedy cave or something like that right like you can there's lots of different things that you can do when you're in these neat cities that you ordinarily probably pay to go on a short vacation to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to inspire that in people. And, and we're also trying to just be a good travel companion for people who are oftentimes traveling by themselves. So there's just been some, what we do is we keep an eye on social media. When somebody's like, my flight's delayed or my flight got canceled or I missed my flight or something went bad, went wrong. We're looking for that. And so we've got a team of people that we've stood up that are looking for that and they go and find a way to delight you. Oh, your, your flight got canceled. That's cool. Dinner's on us at the restaurant that nobody else can get a reservation to or we got you tickets to the game because you know what if you got an extra evening here you deserve to do something good and so it's not always a disaster recovery situation Mm -hmm. and it's never our fault it's not something that we've done it's just that we're trying to find ways to say hey you can still have fun doing this. Sometimes it's a drag. Sometimes it sucks to be on the road, but you can still have fun. So that's mm. a brand that I like. We're, it's not cool. proven yet, but yeah. I think that you know it's a young brand. We we got a lot of work to do, but the products are great. The team over there is amazing, and I think you know their willingness to lean into some of these things that are like, uh, how the hell do we fulfill that? Like, mm-hmm. how do we do that? Yeah, they just they're like, okay, let's figure it out. So awesome. I like that. Those are the things that I like the most is when somebody's willing to lean into a hard thing that there's there's no playbook for that. Yeah, just try stuff out. That's awesome. I want to bring it back to cannabis because I feel like there's a lot more to talk about there. You decided to essentially niche down on that with your new agency. Can you talk a bit more? I mean, we it's obvious that you love it. It, Was it more of a passion play or is it more of a business strategy or opportunity or both? Yeah, I think it's both. But on a passion side, I think that's probably more what what has driven me. I didn't write the book thinking about launching an agency. I wrote the book because I was like, the thoughts I have are too complicated to explain in a podcast. <laughs> like, nice. You said a lot of words there. I don't know. Cool. But I take your word for it. So I wrote it down in a book because it felt like even though it's 2019, most people just listen to podcasts. It felt like the most effective way to accurately get that information across. I wrote that not thinking about launching an agency. I wrote the book because I genuinely thought people needed to know that they're doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so the passion that drove me there, the passion that drove me to sort of explore that and go as deep as I did was really out of this sort of like nerdy side of me that's really into behavioral psychology. Cannabis is going to change the world. There's no question about it. How fast that happens, how long it takes, that's TBD, you know, because we're unseating a hundred years of prohibition, a hundred years of the war on drugs, yeah. of the reefer madness and stuff like that. And getting that out of people's minds and make, helping them to think that this isn't an evil thing. This isn't right. a bad thing. And it's not a thing that just makes you a loser on the couch that can't get his act or her act together. But changing that perception in the public is a huge challenge. And I like that. I like hard challenges to solve. And so to me, the industry is solving that challenge, some better than others. But in terms of just main, you know, it's often referred to as mainstreaming cannabis, bringing cannabis from the black market to the supermarket. There's a lot of people that are playing a role there. I wanted to play a role. I wanted to be a part of this gigantic social experiment that we have of changing people's perception around something that they have been very vocally told was evil and bad and harmful for a hundred years. So if you think it's hard to optimize your click-through rate on a campaign, like <laughs> it's, this is like you're changing society. Yeah. And that's, I think, how big it actually is. 
that's why I'm leaned into it. Now, I'd be lying if I didn't think, you know, I'm chasing a bit of opportunity too, because I think there is a lot of opportunity in a space where there hasn't been a lot of thinking done on what this looks like, how this plays out over the next three to five years. I haven't seen very many people bring that kind of thought leadership to market yet, certainly not in a book. And I really am trying to think about it a little bit further, a little bit longer horizon than I think most people are right now. So, you know, I'm, uh, there's opportunism in there as well. But I think the driving factor is that this is a very interesting experiment to be involved in. Totally. Well, you were talking about like, obviously it's legalized in Canada and in a lot of places too now. And we're in an interesting position because although it's legal, it's not legal to advertise yet. Can you talk a bit about how cannabis brands can carve out market share without advertising? And you alluded to it a bit before about building brand, but what does that look like when you can't spend a dollar on advertising? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Canada, it's a huge challenge. Most of the work that I do is with organizations in the, in the United States and Canada is far more regulated from a marketing perspective than it is in the States, at least at the moment that may change. You know, when those regulations first came out, when they were first announced before legalization back in, I think the regs dropped midway through the year 2018. I wrote a piece on how this is a good thing for the industry. <laughs> like all of you lazy marketers, you just got your playbook ripped apart. Yeah, You definitely. don't have it anymore. So you can't just buy ads, go on sale, you know, play this, nor all these things that you're, you normally would play. And what you need to realize is that's actually a good thing because it's going to force you to think in non-traditional routes to be relevant to an audience. Now, if I'm fully honest, I think that the government is far too austere in those regulations. I, th- I think it's overstepping, but again, that's the social experiment, right? right. The government's like, we're legalizing it, but we still think it's evil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, So we're going to make it really hard to do anything creative or meaningful here. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's brands that are doing a decent job of it. And I think you get to start to think down to how you, you know, it's probably a little bit easier for retailers in some way. You get to control that experience face to face. But, you know, on the medical side of things, you know, direct fulfillment, that kind of stuff, you, there's an experience there. There's still an experience on your website. Mm -hmm. There are pieces of media that you can use. There's things that you can do. And I think, you know, the other thing, you you can find ways to partner with, not partner, I'm not a lawyer, but like there are brands with cross-border relevance. I'll put it that way. And, you know, a message in the States is not necessarily ignored or unseen by Canadians. But, you know, I think generally, even in the States, it's not just the government regulations, the big platforms that people rely on these days, like uh, Facebook-owned platforms right. and Google also restrict any sort of paid promotion totally. that deals with cannabis. In fact, they restrict paid promotions that deal with CBD still, mm-hmm. even though CBD has sort of been reclassified in the US, not in Canada, but in the US to be distinct from cannabis. Those platforms, so even if the regulations aren't as steer as they are in Canada, those platforms still don't allow for you to do anything. Right. And again, I'm like, good. Because it's lazy marketing. Yeah. Go do something that is remarkable enough for people to talk about it. Like there's still lots of, lot of things that are available to you and that you can do. And there's brands that are doing experiential concerts down in the States with, you know, here's an edible and then go listen mm-hmm. to this music and watch this like show and, and, and int- integrate with it. There's brands that are finding unique form factors to bring their product to market in. There's brands that are bringing innovation from a product development standpoint, like introducing technology right. into it and stuff like that. Um, there's some brands that are exploring interesting partnerships. I think we're going to see a huge wave of licensing. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of existing brands that people already have relationships being leveraged to sell more down the line. Uh, you know, McDonald's, pre-rolls and stuff like that. Maybe not McDonald's, but that kind of thing's going to happen. And so there's a lot of room to maneuver, particularly down the States, certainly less so in Canada. But what needs to happen is you need to throw out this conventional rule book or this conventional playbook of like, okay, we need awareness. So we'll buy ads. Okay. We need people to buy. So we'll put it on sale. Okay. Let's do that again. Like there's a whole series of things after somebody buys from you where they're still interacting with your brand. And if right. you're not thinking about that experience, then I hope you go out of business. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> nice. uh, like I think you, you know, but you need to think more broadly than, than just like awareness and consideration in terms of the buying cycle. Nice. So just digging into that a little bit further, 
what are a few tips you can offer to entrepreneurs or brand builders in this cannabis or CBD space outside of these lazy marketing and advertising habits that we've gotten into? Yeah. So probably two things. Okay. Here's what I would say. The number one thing that denotes a successful cannabis brand from one that is at risk in the apocalyptic era is the degree to which they have specified who their audience is. If you don't have a specific definition of who you're selling to, you can't hope to do anything meaningful or relevant to anyone. And are you saying internally or are you also even saying specifying to your audience who they are? No, I'm saying internally in that case, it's you have to have a clear idea of who you are building something Not just a shotgun blast. Yeah, you cannot be everything to everyone. Right. It's even more important in cannabis than it is in any other industry. So, that's the first thing that I try to help people to understand. Who are you building this for? Let's define them. Once you've done that, I think the the second question, the second sort of counsel or thing that we workshop through is why. So, if you know who, then go to why. Like Simon Sinek, start with why. I'm like, yeah, I think so. Why is super important? Why is the rich emotional territory? But I say who comes before why, who is for, and then why. And why could be like, what's the difference that you're trying to make in their life? What's the experience you're trying to deliver? And why is that important? If you can define that and it's meaningful and you may need to test it with your market, but if you can define what it is, maybe it is simply relax. That's okay. It's a little generic. You probably go a little bit deeper, but it's not get high. It's so much beyond that. It could be about enhancing experience. It could be about rehabilitation. It could Mm. be about balancing out your life, you know, balancing out family and work and stress and all that stuff. There's lots of different things that you could be doing. So understand why. So that's your, that's your purpose. And if you can say, this is who we're for and this is why we're for them. This is the purpose. This is the mission in the world that we must fulfill. The third question you need to ask yourself is, okay, if that's your mission, if you, you know, at all costs come hell or high water, you have got to complete that mission, no matter what, remove cannabis from your brand for a moment and do this thought experiment. So, I have got to help moms handle the stress of preteen kids in school. I don't Mm -hmm. know, something like that. That's a bad example, but this is free. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you want a good one, you got to pay me for it. <laughs> nice. no. uh, so, mom's trying to ha- handle the stress of preteen kids in school. Mm-hmm. That's your person. That's your purpose. But you have to help them with that stress. That's your job. That's your mission in the world. You will not rest until you do it. And I just took all your cannabis away. How are you doing it? How are you delivering stress relief or stress-free or that idea to that person without any cannabis. And you got to think about it. It's mm-hmm. tough. What are you going to give? You know, is it, a, are you giving massages? Are you going to take, are you buying her groceries for right. her? Or are you giving her playlists to listen to on the way to, from school? Are you doing, you know, some sort of reward program where she's just, you know, you're just recognizing her, you're shouting her out. I don't know. There could be a thousand different things that you would do to fulfill that purpose. Well, guess what? That's what you should be doing anyways. Because that's the kind of thing that elevates your brand outside of the context of cannabis and outside of the commoditized fray, this battleground of like competing on whose weed is a better quality or whose packaging is nicer or whose price is cheaper or whatever, right? Now you're doing the things that actually make your mission true Mm -hmm. and it's not bullshit Mm -hmm. because you're actually showing that you care about it. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's That's some Don Draper shit right there. Yeah, for real. You mentioned that CBD is separate or should be considered separate than cannabis. And I was doing some research on CBD. I feel like there's a CBD everything, like oils. I even found like CBD beverages, like... And it's, I feel like they're kind of sitting in terms of marketing in like a wellness space almost. So like how are CBD brands competing with other brands in this category? Like how do you think are they, is what you were mentioning in terms of bringing experience and, and finding other ways to like to meet their mission, is that the same for CBD brands? Or do you think that that challenge of moving away from the commodity doesn't really exist in CBD? So it's not just oils 
and capsules and gummies and lotions. It's there's like CBD yoga pants. <laughs> it's it's crazy. in every vertical. It seems it's like so wild. out of control. See, yeah. So CBD is just for the listeners who maybe aren't as passionate about cannabis. CBD is the dominant non psychoactive component of cannabis. It's mm-hmm. hemp is essentially cannabis that has a high moderate to high concentration of CBD and almost no THC in it. So CBD is this compound that has shown, you know, some evidence through some small studies and things like that for various health benefits. The good thing about legalization is it's actually, now there's money to fund real studies. So we actually know what the science is going to, we will know what the science is. And so there's lots of studies that are going into it right now. And there's a lot of debate on whether it's actually an effective natural health ingredient or not. But I I believe that there's probably some benefit there. It probably doesn't go quite as far as a lot of the really, really vocal advocates for CBD think it does. But I think there is a benefit to it in some regards for some people. It's the same thing when you're marketing CBD. Essentially, you're you're saying I'm a commodity. Mm -hmm. Here's wheat. I have wheat for sale and it's wheat in a balm or wheat in a, you know, it's like you got to think into the experience of somebody that that's brand, the experience of interacting with you and really get into that territory. And if if you're going to survive in that fray, there's several thousand CBD brands in North America right now. Wow. Most of them are fairly small. Most of those people are good people who, you know, at, oftentimes at risk to their own personal uh, standing in the world, like their own, you know, freedom, their own whatever, grew and sold it when it was still illegal. Mm-hmm. But they did so out of a belief that it was good for people. And I'm ho- hoping that some of those beliefs become true or become proven to be true. But the unfortunate part is that those people don't have the, they lack the sophistication and the scale of operation to take a swing at this market in the in the changes that are coming. There's going to be a lot of really big brands that enter the market. We see Target, Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, these major retailers in the States are now stocking several brands of CBD and selling it to consumers. We, consumers who are frankly ignorant about what it's for, what it does. They just heard about it. Oprah talked about it or whatever. More likely Goop, you know, Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow talked about it or whatever. But I think you got to think about it the same way as you think about cannabis. It's similar in that regard. The audience is a little bit different. The reasons for use are a little bit different. Those all things, those things need to be rethought. It's a very different playbook than, it's a similar playbook, but it's a different sort of output Mm -hmm. for marketing a natural health ingredient than it is to market a really recreational or even medicinal cannabis. Mm -hmm. It's going to lose the contentious advantage faster than cannabis will. People will be like, oh, okay, it's not that big of, CBD is not that big of a deal. There was a time when we first started getting into the space that CBD and cannabis were really, really closely linked. They were thought of as basically the same thing. People are starting to understand that it is different now. But yeah, so you do have to do that. And I think there's a lot of different ways to, to do it. But yeah, I would, I would start with the same thing. Narrow your audience. It's risky for people. People don't like narrowing their audience because they think it narrows their opportunity. So business leaders get uncomfortable with a niche play. And I understand why, because it's counterintuitive to think that your relevance increases the more you focus on a smaller audience. But that is in almost any industry, that is absolutely how it works. Mm -hmm. Because it's so much more powerful to be super, super, super relevant to a small group of people than to be sort of relevant to everybody. Because people don't trust brands. They trust people. And while we have human-like relationships with brands, we have many sort of non-existent relationships with brands that we just don't trust. We don't trust their ads. We don't trust the claims they're making. Any of the, We don't want to really interact with them. But humans trust humans. And if you can achieve hyper-relevance with a narrow audience and get them talking about you, now you get a human-to-human recommendation. You, first of all, you're not spending any money on ads to get that. But second of all, it's actually effective right. because that person has a far higher degree of persuasion with their friend than you do through the ad. Through that an ad, them, yeah. right? <laughs> all right. So moving on to our last question here. What's a brand that you're following that's making waves online and why? You know, you mentioned Traeger already. Any other ones that you want to shout out? I love, and they're sort of, clo- they're kind of closely tied, but I do love Yeti for what they're doing as well. And I think from the content that they put out, I think from the, you know, how they've extended from 
one really niche audience to another niche audience to another niche audience is a really interesting sort of study in neo-tribalism. And I love the the conviction that they bring to everything they do, from everything for product development, product testing, all the way through to how they communicate and how they relate and how they mm-hmm. activate and stuff like that. So yeah, they're one to look out for. I do love what Traeger's doing online. I love what they're doing in social. You know, they've just got great, great sort of contexts that they're not even really contests. They're just like engaging a great community of people that are passionate about it. I love seeing that. I love people that just know who they're for and then find ways to just add value to a community in a really authentic way. And those are two brands that I think do a fantastic job of it. Awesome. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Not really a question, but just to kind of give you opportunity for last comments, you have written an awesome book, just launched a cool new engagement agency in the cannabis space. That's essentially what you're working on. Anything else you want to mention and where can our listeners find the book and connect with you? Yeah. So actually, if you go to indelible.co, that's I-N-D-E-L-I-B-L-E.co. We couldn't afford the M. Uh, the, <laughs> you, can, you can actually download the first four chapters of the book for free. So if you're interested in just getting a sense of what it is that we think about how the industry shakes out, you can download the first four chapters for free there. If you want to follow me, I put this kind of content up. I talk about this stuff a lot, probably a little bit more on LinkedIn than I do on Instagram. But you can find me on Instagram at Owen underscore the underscore wild or Owen Reader on LinkedIn. Both are fine. Nice. Wonderful. Is there adventure content on Owen the Wild as well? It's from time to time. Yeah. From time to time, I go fishing or hunting or something like that. Yeah. You sound like a pioneer. (laughs) Nice. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. Yeah. And for sharing your insight. I'm sure we'll have you back sometime, but for now. Always happy to chat. Yeah. Yeah. It's been awesome. Learned so much. It was great. Thank you. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at wavesocial on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.